Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Uh, today we are going to begin in the second chapter, verse 5. And actually, this is one of those important verses that when we're listening to the Megillah, everybody recites this verse out loud. The Ramah in Shulchan Aruch calls it one of Psuke HaGeula, one of the verses of redemption. So clearly this is a, a foundational verse, and one that has an oversized uh, importance in the general story of the Megillah. It's introducing one of the major players. We heard about Achashverosh. We know he's a megalomaniac. We focused on his personality. We're not going to focus on his personality much on the go forward. We, we have most of the information that we need about Achashverosh and how his mind works, how he reacts to situations. This we have already clear. We're now going to be introducing the next major player in the Purim story, whose name is Mordechai. And when we introduce Mordechai, that will be a natural introduction also for his niece, for Esther. So the Megillah says, Ish Yehudi. Now freely translated, Ish Yehudi just means a Jewish man. A Yehudi man. Was in Shushan Habira. Ushimo, and his name, was Mordechai. This Mordechai was the son of Yair, who was the son of Shimi, who was the son of Kish, and he was Ish Yemini. Let's take a look at Rashi. Now Rashi notes the fact that there seems to be a little bit of a contradiction of who he is. Is, is he an Ish Yehudi? Or is he an Ish Yemini? Two different terms. The Pasuk begins by saying Ish Yehudi, a Yehudi man. The Pasuk ends, the verse ends by saying, he's Ben Yoyer, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, he's Ish Yemini. He's a Yemini man. So first of all, what is Yehudi and what is Yemini? And anyway, what is he? Is he Yehudi or is he Yemini? Why would he be both at the same time? Why does one herald the Pasuk and why does one conclude the Pasuk? So Rashi's answer is, that he's called Ish Yehudi not by virtue of his lineage, not by virtue of his past, but rather by virtue of life's experiences. Al Shegola in Golos Yehuda. Because he was exiled from the land of Israel with what's called the Judean exile. To make a very long story short, the Jewish people lived in the Holy Land of Israel, they settled the Holy Land of Israel, eventually they enshrined Yerushalayim as the capital. That's called Ir David, city of David HaMelech. Shlomo HaMelech becomes the king. He builds the Beit HaMikdash as his father had planned, and everything is hunky-dory. It's wonderful. The whole world loves the Jews. Everybody's coming to pay tribute and to, to give homage to Shlomo HaMelech. Now, of course, these wonderful times don't last very long. Shlomo HaMelech has a son, and the son is a fool, and he overcharges the people with taxes. Eventually, to make a long story even shorter, the kingdom breaks apart. We have two kingdoms that emerge in biblical Israel. One is called Malchus Yisrael, or the Israelite kingdom, and one is called Malchut Yehuda, the Judean kingdom. And they live mutually exclusive of each other. And in the book of Kings, you read about different kings. You read about the Yehuda kings, the Judean kings, and you read about the Israelite kings. Now, eventually, all of the Jewish people are routed or exiled from the land of Israel. First, Aserat HaShvatim. First, the ten tribes, which excludes the tribe of Yehuda and Binyamin, are exiled. Malchus Yisrael is destroyed. They're much more sinful than Malchus Yehuda. And uh, virtually no Jews are left in that entire area of Israel. Now, all of the Jewish population is concentrated in the south. Eventually, some of the remnants of these ten tribes return, and people begin to settle and to develop, further broaden and develop the settlement in southern Israel. In fact, at a certain point, Chizkiyo HaMelech, who is miraculously saved from the Assyrians, he has to expand the city of Yerushalayim so that he can take in the new refugees. And um, unfortunately, that doesn't last very long. Several decades later, the Judean kingdom falls as well. And that's the famous story of Nebuchadnezzar and Babel, the Babylonian exile, which we call the Babylonian exile, Galut Babel, but it's also sometimes referred to as Galut Yehuda because the, the uh, Israelite kingdoms that had been exiled previously, that's called Golos Yisro. 
Now, Galut Yisrael, or the Aseret HaShvatim, never really come home en masse. This is, a, this is a discussion for another day. There's a misnomer that everybody, every Jew today, is either from the tribe of Yehuda and Binyamin, and that is a misnomer. It's simply incorrect, and there are a thousand proofs for it. Um, one of the proofs is that... Uh, the scripture itself talks about uh, a prophetess whose name is Chulda. And the Gemara asks, why was she not present at a certain time? And says that she went to bring back members of Aseris Hashvatim. The scripture itself talks about Chizkiyo accepting refugees from Aseris Hashvatim. Many of the Rishonim and the Achreinim have writings that are filled with references to Rishonim, to, to uh, the other Shvatim. Uh, the Rambam talks about a Sefer Torah that he saw, that he believed was the perfect specimen, that had all the mosaic traditions, the right spaces and the right amount of paragraphs. And he says that this was the, the Torah that was reviewed by Ben Usher. Uh, ben Usher's name was Moshe Ben Aaron. Why is he called Ben Usher? Because it's in the tribe of Usher. So the, the, there, are, there are many, many references. A big, this, this is a big urban legend that there's none, none of the ten tribes amongst us. It's not true. There are many of the ten tribes. But they, they never came home as tribes. They never came home complete. A trickle here and a trickle there. Always yechidim, always remnants, always individuals, families, but never as, as tribes. And in the second base Hamikdash, we didn't live in that kind of tribal formation. So the second Golis is called Golis Yehuda. And Rashi maintains, all of the Jews who were exiled with the Judean king, Hayakuruyim Yehudim, were called Yehudim. In other words, Yehudi is a permutation of the tribe Yehuda. So Ish Yehudi means he's a Yehudi, he's a member of the tribe of Judah. Except that we're going to find that he really isn't. <laughs> because we find that he's Ish Yemini. He's a member of the Binyamin tribe. So we start off saying Ish Yehudi according to Rashi because all of the Jews who were exiled with the Judean king assumed the identity of the Judean kings. It was called the kingdom of Judea. And since he was a leader of the Jews who lived in Judea, he was called a Judean, Yehudi. Even if they are from another tribe. Ibn Ezra doesn't disagree very much. Although you'll see in the writings of the other Mepharshim, there's a whole, a whole, a whole huge, a, pl a plethora of explanations of what's really going on over here. But in a level of pshat, Ibn Ezra also says, Ish Yehudi ba'avur hayoto mimalchut Yehuda, since he came from the Judean kingdom. So therefore, Nicarakani is called that. And why is he called Ishimini? So Rashi says, Mi binyamin hayo. Yimin is the origin it's the organic form of the name Binyamin. Rachel called her son in her dying throes Ben-Oni, the son of my pain. And Yaakov called him Ben-Yamin, son of the right, which is a, a euphemism that refers to Eretz Yisrael and has many other meanings that come along with it. So the name Binyamin actually is Ben-Yamin. So what is the, if you break down the, the organic essence of the word, Really, it's Yamin. So if you're from the tribe of Binyamin, you didn't have to be Binyamini. You could simply be Yamini. Well, that's what he was, Yamini. And Rashi himself acknowledges that there is a tremendous amount of excitement about this Pasuk. He says, Rabbi Sheinu Darshu Masha Darshu. Our rabbis, they, they delved into this, and they investigated, and they laid bare all kinds of fascinating details. But that's not Pshat. On the simple level of Pshat, Mordechai was from the Judean exile. He was of the Binyamin tribe. That's a simple pshat. And Ibn Ezra doesn't seem to disagree at all. He says, Yemini, whatever. That's a, he says, Chaser, Ben, Derech Tzara. It should have said Ben Yemini, but instead of said Binyamin, it says Yemini. So basically, all the only thing Ibn Ezra is commenting on is why it says Yemini instead of Binyamini. But everybody would agree that that is the simple pshat. <laughs> Of course, from simple pshat, now we're going to go into not so simple pshat at all. And you're going to find out that there's actually an enormous amount of activity that's going on over here. I'm going to leapfrog over all the things that are written in the Targumim and in the Talmud until later. I'm just going to sew up the, the, the idea with regard to Rashi, and then we're going to go back to everything in the middle. So the Rebbe says that it's true that Rashi says in pshat, on the literal level, he explains the Pasuk of Ish Yehudi. And he's called a Yehudi. And the Pasuk finishes Ish Yemini, 
which is a natural contradiction. What is he? Make up your mind. Are you a Yehudi or are you a Yemini? So he says he's from Golos Yehuda. That's why he's called Ish Yehudi. He's from, he is from the tribe of Binyamin. That's why he's called Ish Yemini. But the truth is, the Rebbe says that in, if you think about it, this answer is only satisfactory for Perik Bey's Pasuk It only works for this particular verse. But all over the Megillah, what are we called? What are we known as? Yehudim. Ba'am ha-Yehudi, be-Yehudim, spelled with one Yud, spelled with two Yuds. We're called Yehudim. The name for Jews throughout the whole Megillah, the whole book is always Yehudim. So you didn't really answer that question. In other words, Rashi chose to focus only on this verse, and specifically, he chose to focus on the contradiction between the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse, as the Sifzich Chacham says, the Kashale, what was bothering Rashi here? Why did Rashi have to tell you why he's called Yehudi? Well, because Kadele Yehudi, the Kadele Yemini. Here you call him a Yehudi, here you call him a Yemini, in the same Pasuk. He begins being one ID, he finishes with a different identification. Who is he? So therefore we say, for the Golos Yehuda, he's called Yehudi, from the tribe, he's called Yemini. Okay. But the truth is, the emes is that you can't say that the Kino Yehudi is only given to people from Golis Yehuda. Because Ahasuerus ruled over 127 countries or provinces. A massive area. One of the largest empires ever in history. Where were the Aseris Hashvatim? Where were they? In Atlantis? Where were they sent to? I mean, the scripture describes, we don't know exactly where Chalov and Chavar is, but it's somewhere in Syria. We understand it to be in, in the area. Syria, where, in, in Kurdistan, somewhere in that area, that's, that's where these Jews are living. That was under the sway of Ahasuerus. And everybody is called by Yehudim. It's called all the Yehudim. He wanted to kill all the Jews. He didn't just want to kill the Jews from the second, base, the, the second exile. He was very happy to kill the Jews in the first exile also. If they identified Jewishly, they had a target on the back. So therefore, it's very important for us to understand that Rashi's answer here is not an exhaustive answer with regard to why Mordechai is called Ish Yehudi, but rather why the Pasuk is not a contradiction. Why the verse identifies him in two different ways. Why is he really called Yehudi? Ah, so for this, we have a famous Gemara. The Gemara says that the idea of a Yehudi is a person who does not accept the concept of idolatry, who rejects the concept of idolatry. And that's, in general, how we have to understand the concept of Yehudi. And that's, if we, if one, once we understand this Maimar Chazal from the Gemara in Megillah, that says that Yehudi is a name that's given to the person who denies idolatry, the person who acknowledges the supremacy and the monotheistic reality of God is called the Yehudi. So that's why Mordechai is called the Yehudi. Kohanim were called Yehudim. Levim were called Yehudim. The tribe of Usher and Aftali and Dan, they're all called Yehudim. And that's why when the Megillah finishes, we say, La Yehudim. La Yehudim doesn't say La Yehudim, La Yisrael, La Binyaminim, La Danim. La Yehudim, it's all of us. Because at the end, ultimately all of the Jewish people in the time of Purim rallied around Mordechai, they all did tshuva. They all became Jews of Mesiras Nefesh. They all became people who were ready to deny the concept of idolatry in order to remain faithful to the ethos of Judaism. And that's what they're all called Yehudim. So, so why is it unique to Mordechai? So, so really what comes out is like this. In the beginning, there weren't that many Yehudim. There weren't that many people who denied idolatry. In fact, as we learned a few classes ago, when they made that big party on Shabbos, using non-kosher food, well, there was kosher food too, but you know. And they used kalim, vessels of the Beis HaMikdash, and there was idolatrous practice going on. There was a lot of Jews who participated. So there weren't that many Jews who were called Yehudi. Mordechai was, in fact, perhaps the only Yehudi who was living in Shushan Habira. And this is very interesting where we emphasize where he lived. Ibn Ezra says, the Pasuk wants us to understand how later on Mordechai is able to go visit Esther. How does he even get to the capital city? 
The Alshech explains that, in, that the city of Shushan actually was like a twin cities. There was Shushan Habira, Shushan the capital city, and then there was the suburb of Shushan. So the Jews lived in Thornhill. <laughs> they lived in the suburb. They lived outside. And to live in Shushan Habira, you, you, Jews weren't allowed to live. Unless you had a special exemption. Unless you were seen as some kind of prominent Jew. And Mordechai was a prominent Jew like that. So of the prominent Jews who lived in Shushan Habira, there was really only one Yehudi. There was only one person who continued to deny the idea of idolatry, who continued to remain faithful to Yiddishkeit. And that's why he's called Ish Yehudi. Certainly he's called Ashagola in Golas Yehuda. Of course he's called Yehudi because he was from the Judean exile. But not everybody from the Judean exile was living up to their name at that point. Ish Yehudi specifically emphasizes the concept of, of Mordechai's uniqueness and of the special nature of who he was. Now, having said that, I'm going to give you some, some of the other background. Ish Yehudi Haya, according to this, we understand a very interesting thing that the Medrash says. The Medrash says, Ish Yehudi Haya. What does it mean, Haya? There was a Yehudi man. Now, we understand Yehudi not just like as a name now. We understand Yehudi as, as an attitude, as a perspective, as a, as a, 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 a whole Weltanschauung, if you will. A holy way to look at the world. So the Medr says, whenever it says the word Hayah, that was his beginning, that was his end. Mordechai never wavered. He didn't change his tune. He never moved from basic principles. He was therefore metukan le geula. He was ready for geula. And that Medr helps understand why this Pasuk is one of the Psukim of geula. How did redemption come to the Jewish people? Because there was a man named Mordechai. And because Mordechai was a righteous Jew. And because Mordechai never lost his, his moorings. He never veered off the path. He was always connected. He always had the right perspective on things. And as such, he was fixed up for Gula. The, the Medrash then tells us another interesting thing. It says about, it says Rabbi Levi said, whoever it says Haya, it says he saw a new world. He saw one world, and then he saw another world. On one hand, we say about Mordechai that he's wearing Sakva Efer, that he's wearing rags. He's wearing sackcloth as a sign of mourning. And the Megillah finishes with a different outfit. He's wearing a new wardrobe. That he's wearing royal raiments. So this is perhaps not disconnected. It's the same Mordechai. The clothes didn't make the man. Whether he wore sackcloth or whether he was wearing royal robes. He was Mordechai HaYehudi. Through and through. And that's why he was the great Rebbe of the Jewish people. That's why he was able to lead us through that very difficult time. The, the, uh, the Targum Sheni has a, a fascinating detail. Targum Sheni is of unknown authorship. It's, it's, it's like the original Targum, only it's much, much more broad. It incorporates many Midrashim. And uh, to, to, to kind of um, give you a synopsis of the Targum Sheni, there's a bigger question that's asked. Why do we have to say ben, uh, he's Mordechai, ben Yoyer, ben Shimi, ben Kish, Ishimini? So we'll soon see that the, the Megillah, the Gemara Megillah actually tells us that there was special, unique, excuse me, characteristics of Mordechai that are being conveyed through his ancestry. There's something Yoyer represents, there's something Shimi represents, there's something that Kish represents. But on a literal level, uh, there's actually the whole lineage of Mordechai is spelled out in Paschek and Aksav, in the Targum Sheni. The whole lineage, name, generation, going all the way back to Binyamin, the son of Yaakov. And, and Sh Shimi is, uh, you know, a couple of generations back. And Kish is the father of Shaul HaMelech, which is a whole bunch of missing generations. Something doesn't fit over here. Shaul. Going way back. Shimi is like six generations later. So we're skipping all those people, and, and actually, there's a dispute amongst the sages if, if Mordechai was actually from the family of Shaul Amelech. Some say he was in the family of the father of Shaul Amelech. Some say he was from Kish, not from Shaul. But his royal lineage, Saul was the first king of the Jewish people, but not actually of Shaul Amelech. So this is what the Targum tells us. There was a man whose name was Shimi. Shimi was a, a, a member of the Sanhedrin, I believe. Certainly a great scholar. He's very well respected. And he was very angry that David and Melech became the king. He felt insulted. His family lost the monarchy. And at a certain point, when David and Melech is at a very low ebb, 
He's, he's dealing with a civil war and strife in his own family. And I think, I think it's during the Battle of Avshalom. So Shimi curses David HaMelech. He's pelting him with rocks. He's cursing him. And, and, and everybody's going crazy. The king, you're the king. You have to offer this head. That's halacha and teira. Somebody insults the king publicly, he forfeits his life. And David Amel says, Hashem wants these words to be said. He doesn't, he doesn't, he says, not now. Not now. If not for Hashem giving Shimi the ability to speak now, these words wouldn't be heard now. And David Amel feels that this, is, this has to be left alone at this point. Later on, David Amelach instructs his son Shloimeh. He says that justice has to be carried out. And this person publicly defamed the king. But he says, but make sure that he first establishes a family. The, the sentence should not be carried out until his family is established. Why? Because David HaMelech prophetically knew that there would be a future time for the Jewish people when they would be in a very precarious situation and that the descendant of Shimi would be the one to save them. And this is Mordechai. So who gets credit for Mordechai's existence? David HaMelech. Which tribe is that? Yehuda. And actually, some want to say that the tribe of Yehuda vied for the rights. They said it's all because of us that there was a Mordechai. You know, after success, everybody wants to be the father of the success. Everybody wants to claim paternity. So they said later, oh, when you write the Megillah, it's Yehudi, he was a Yehudi. Well, well how did he ever come to be ex ex extant? And the Binyamin tribe said, yeah, but he is Ishumini. He is from our tribe after all. Like everybody wanted to claim Mordechai as theirs later on. So we had, so we have this, this interesting kind of tug of war and we have a very interesting background of how this is like in the works for generations by people who responded to prophetic intuition. A, a totally different approach, uh, I think you've just found the writings of the Vilna going, we have a little bit of a, a, like a different way of coming at this. That Mordechai was a leader amongst his people as a very young person when they were living tribally. The tribe of Binyamin was living where Binyamin was and Yehuda was a Binyamin and he was a leader, he was a leader of the tribe of Binyamin. After the Golos of Malchus Yisrael and the amalgamation of different tribes into one kingdom called Malchus Yehuda that continued to sustain itself after Sancherev, after the Assyrian Empire destroyed northern Israel. So then the Jewish people weren't living so much in tribal formation anymore. They essentially all melded into, they melted into the identity of Yehuda. Which is very similar to what Rashi says. <coughs> so really, Ishimini is he was once upon a time Yishimini. That was his former title. What is his present title? Now he's Yishihudi. He was once a leader of Binyamin. Now he's a leader of Yehuda. And perhaps we could add to that a little bit. Uh, the Rebbe once spoke a very interesting sikha about leadership. And he said that a person could be a leader of a small group, a small parochial area, but then later they become a leader of the entire group. So then they can't give precedence over their parochial original ties, but rather they have to be the leader of everybody. Let's use a simple crass example. Every prime minister was once the member of parliament for a little riding somewhere. It has to start that way. So if that prime minister is still you know, attached to his little riding and he keeps trying to do things for his little riding, he's not the prime minister. Because the prime minister is supposed to be concerned with the, with the whole country, not the province and not the riding. So once upon a time, Binyamin was a provincial leader, uh, uh, Mordechai. His concern was the tribe of Binyamin. That's who he dedicated himself to. But at this point, Mordechai transcends Binyamin. He becomes Ishihudi. He becomes the leader of all the Jewish people. He is the undisputed Rebbe, spiritual leader, lodestar, uh, mover and shaker, catalyst for good things to happen. That's why he's called Ishihudi. And that's why that title appears first. So one of the interesting things, this is about us on a lineage level. Let's talk about this now a little bit more. In a, um, let's, let's talk about it like theologically a little bit. So the, the, the Gemara says like this. Why are we talking about his yichus? What are we talking about his, his lineage? What, what difference does it make? If you want to do lineage, so then you should have spelled out the lineage all the way to Binyamin. If you want to do lineage. And, and the Targum actually does that. The Targum actually traces his lineage. Father to son, father to son, father to son, all the way back to Binyamin. And so here we say like Ben Yoyer, Ben Shimi, then we go all the way back to Kish, which is like a huge drawback and there's generations that are missing in between. So the Gemara Megillah says that you have to understand this Pasuk as the Brysa puts it, Kidatanya. 
that Kulan Nikru, this was because of who really Mordechai was. That he was called Ben Yair, Sheheir Einehem Shal Yisrael Bitfilasai. The word Yair comes from the Hebrew word Or. But it's not just a noun, it's kind of like a verb or an adverb. It's glowing, sharing light, making illuminated. Mordechai illuminated the eyes of the Jewish people through his prayers. The Gemara goes further and says, Why Shimi? Sheshama el because God listened. The word Shimi is connected to the word Shema, which means to listen. God listened to his prayers. And finally, he's called Kish. Al Shehekish, Al Shaare Rachamim. Hekish means to bang on the doors. He pounded on the gates of mercy. And the gates of mercy were open to him. In other words, Mordechai didn't take no for an answer. He didn't daven once and say, okay, if God doesn't want it to be, so what should I do? I tried. He kept davening. He kept pounding, metaphorically, pounding on the gates of mercy, kept banging on the gates until the gates were open. In other words, the Gemara identifies these three names as actually being the markings of Mordechai's greatness. So the Rebbe in a mimer once asked a very interesting question. When we know Mordechai, we know of a person who is great in what area? What is the greatness of Mordechai? He was the Torah leader. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a person who had the clarity of knowing what was the right and wrong. He was, he was a guide. He was a teacher. We see him in the Megillah bringing small children together. And he's teaching them Torah. He didn't daven with them. The primary emphasis of bringing those 20,000, 22,000 small children, as we're going to get to much later, was to study Torah. There was no Seder that year. So we're going to study Torah. They sat and studied Torah with these children. So Mordechai is a Torah leader. And because he's a Torah leader, so really it's reasonable to say that he's better known for his expansive Torah knowledge rather than his extraordinary uh, aptitude at prayer. He was the rabbi, not the chazan. <laughs> simple, simple uh, colloquialism. You know, the Rebbe doesn't talk about this, but maybe I'm going to draw like a, a parallel. There was a great leader of our people during one of the most tumultuous periods in history when the second base of English was destroyed. His name was Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Extraordinary person. Now is not the time to talk about his greatness and who he was and his place in history. But there's an interesting Gemara that says that when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had a problem in the house with a sick child, he told his wife we should ask Hanina ben Daisa to daven. Hanina ben Daisa was called Malumud ben Isim. He was like a miraculous kind of fellow. And he was known for his extraordinary prayers. He would say, when he would start to pray on somebody's behalf, if the prayer would go smoothly, if it would just flow, he would say this person will live. And if the prayer wouldn't, couldn't get the words out, it was cumbersome, it wasn't, wasn't a naturally easy flow, and he'd say, I don't know. I don't think this person's going to make it. That's, that's how close he was. So his wife says to him, I don't understand. You're the Rebbe of the Jewish people. You're the uncontested leader. And you need Hanina ben Daisa to pray for you? Why is Rebbe Hanina ben Daisa the one? You should be the one davening. So Rebbe Yechonah Mazakai says, you have to understand. I'm like, you know, one of the ministers. Maybe the prime minister. Gets called into the king. So the prime minister doesn't come to the king or queen every day. They have their appointed times. He said, then, there's the person, the attendant, the person who's in and out. He says, Hanina is like, he's in and out. He's there all the time. He's not as a minister. He's not as a leader. He's like, a, like, like almost like a child. The member of the household. He's the butler. So in other words, in greatness-wise, of course, in greatness, who's more powerful? Who's more influential? Of course the prime minister is more influential. But who can get the king's ear at a moment's notice? The Rebbe doesn't ask the question this way, but I'm adding that, like to help us understand the question. Is Mordechai the Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa of his generation, or is Mordechai the Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh of his generation? If you ask most people who know a little bit about Mordechai, they will naturally respond Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh would be a much better fit than Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa. 
who wasn't a great leader, who wasn't known for tremendous charisma. He didn't compel masses of people to behave in a certain way. He didn't inspire individuals. It was a, it was a year to daven with unbelievable closeness to Hashem. He was a, a holy Jew. It's like maybe you could say in our generation, the Lubavitch Rebbe was known for his vast Torah knowledge. Lubavitch Rebbe was known for his concern and his love for every single person. Lubavitch Rebbe was known for his incredible vision, for his leadership. There was a great tzaddik who lived at the same time. His name was Baba Sali. Baba Sali was not known for his Torah teachings. There aren't any volumes of Torah. There are nearly 200 volumes of Torah teachings from the Rebbe published. We don't have volumes of Torah from the Baba Sali. We don't have a tremendous amount of leadership or direction. He didn't, he didn't speak on a regular basis addressing Klal Yisrael, but everybody came to him for prayers. And he was known as the miracle worker. He was close to Hashem. It's an interesting story. <laughs> he once told, he once told my grandfather, Allah Vashalom, that he told people from grandfather Shul who asked if Baba Sali knows the Rebbe, so Baba Sali said, I see him every day. He went like this. He said, I see him every day. So, but maybe that's an example of like Rabbi Hanidim ben Daisa and Rechanim ben Zakkai. Who was Mordechai? If I have to imagine Mordechai in his generation, I see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That's the leader of the Jewish people. The person who was able to galvanize the nation. But the Gemara seems to say, who is Mordechai? Ben Yoyer, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish. Three descriptions that identify who Mordechai was and each of them is all about Prayer. <laughs> that he pounded and shared Achimim. So the Rebbe, the Rebbe's answer is like this. The Rebbe says, before we go to the answer, he delves the question further. He says that the truth is that prayer represents total self-abnegation, putting oneself aside, you know, in a state of prayer, prayerful devotion, whereas Torah knowledge means one has to, one has to be, not not be. You have, to, you have to forcefully express a view. You have to come to a decision. You have to come to a conclusion. They're not just different. They're actually polar opposites. But the truth is, the Rebbe says, that one leads to the other. How does one become great in Torah? How does one have that kind of inner strength and conviction to be able to stand up against the whole world to be a Mordechai Yehudi? The answer is with the Hakdom of Tefillah. It's the, it's the prefacing of prayer. It's, in other words, understand, understand this, the, the Gemara like this. What made Mordechai Yehudi? Where did he come from? What's his ancestry, so to speak? Theoretically speaking, or I should say theologically speaking. How, what begat Mordechai? And the answer is his prayerful devotion to Hashem. That kind of tefillah, that kind of closeness to Hashem, that kind of oneness and communion through prayer allows a Mordechai Yehudi to develop. But obvious lessons for us. A yid has to do all kinds of important things, but the foundation has to be prayer. And actually that's where we start our day. We start today with prayer. From there we go to Torah study and to making a dent, a difference in the world. Uh, this is a very, a synopsis of a very long mimer. I'm just trying to share a, a little thought, as they say. So this is who Mordechai is. Now, I'm, I'm going to finish with, um, with a little bit of the Malbim's perspective. The Malbim says that, besides all these obvious reasons why we introduce Mordechai, or Mordechai is, he says in the, in, the, in the grander scheme of the story, the Megillah now wants to explain to us how Mordechai had tremendous mesiris nefesh, tremendous sacrifice not to send Esther to the palace. He didn't simply let her go. And therefore, the Malbim says, where we talk about how Mordechai would be in a more precarious position than virtually anybody else. If a regular person doesn't listen to the king, what happens? Well, he's just a regular shmendrik, so... Shmendrik will get a punishment like a Shmendrik. But what happens when somebody who's very important doesn't listen to the king? Oh, that's a much bigger deal. So, so the Malbim says, one second, we have to understand that we're talking about a person over here. If Mordechai lived somewhere else, if he was far away from the capital city, so then it wouldn't be such a danger. 
If he was in Shushan, but not Shushan Habira, at least he was across the river, so to speak. He was in the suburb. If his name wouldn't be Mordechai, which means he was a known commodity, okay, so he's a little guy living in a, a small street somewhere. So he kept his nephew's niece home. But he wasn't a little guy. He was a famous person. He was Mordechai. He was Mordechai HaYehudi because he was a leader of the Jewish people. He was Ishimini. He came from royal descent. And he was identified the Ahasuerosh as a person of royal bearing, as a person with a high birth, who has leadership qualities, who is allowed to live in Shushan Abira, as the Alshach says, and really living in the middle of the hornet's nest. He still doesn't send Esther right away, which is a tremendous risk that he takes. And it emphasizes for us the mysterious nefesh of Mordechai and helps us understand that Mordechai did not simply give in and send Esther off to, to the king's palace. Let's talk a little bit more about Mordechai now. So this Ishihudi, who lives in Sushan Abira, whose name is such and such, was Ishimini, now the Torah tells us a little bit more about him. Asher Heglom Yerushalayim. It's interesting, when we read the Megillah, the tune changes here. It takes on an Echa, Echa-like uh, lamentation uh, kind of uh, tune for a moment. Even though generally the Megillah has a very joyous tune, here we talk about Galut, exile. So we say, who was exiled from Yerushalayim, Im Hagola, with the exiles, Asher Haglasa, which he was exiled, in Yechonia Melech Yehuda, <coughs> with Yechonia, who was the king of Yehuda, Asher Hegla, that was exiled by Nebuchadnezzar Melech Bavel. Anybody know how many times it says the word exiled in this Pasuk? Want to count? Asher Hagla Mirushalayim, Im Hagoyla Asher Haglasa, Asher Hagla Nebuchadnezzar. We can count at least three times this idea of exile. Think maybe we could have uh, cleaned this verse up a little and shortened it up a little. <laughs> you could have just said, "Asher Haglam Yerushalayim im Yechonya al Yedid Nevuchadnezzar." So that that's the first thing you should have warning bells to say. One second, what's going on here? Why do we have to emphasize so much that that uh, this is um, exile, exile, exile? What's going on over here? By the way, before we go further, I should point out to you that Ibn Ezra is one of those who says clearly that he was definitely not Shaul's son. Because if he says, if he was Shaul's son, it would have mentioned Shaul, not Kish. And in the Targum, <coughs> though it does seem that he is Shaul's son. So, whatever. Uh, but going back to our, to Pasuk Vav. So the Gemara says something very interesting. The Gemara in the Megillah, in Daphne Gimel, says, Asher heglo mirushalayim, shagala me'atzmai. That he exiled himself. So why is that a virtue? Why would it be a virtue if he exiled himself? He left Israel willingly? So um, the, the Mepharshim explained that Mordechai HaTzadik did not want to leave Israel. He felt compelled that if the people were leaving, he had to go with the people. This is similar to Yirmiyo. Prophet Jeremiah didn't have to go. But he said, I will go with my people. If they go to Golos, I go to Golos too. So what do we see here about Mordechai? He's a person who lived not for his own good, but rather he lived for the needs of others, a true leader. So that's, that's hint number one of why we're talking about how many times Asher Hagla, which Haglasa, this, this emphasis, continued emphasis on, on, uh, on, on how many times that they, we mention specifically the idea of going into Golas. Another, another very interesting concept is raised by... So the Vilna Gaon suggests like this. He says that Mordechai actually returned back to Eretz Yisrael three times. It's like he kept going back and he kept having to leave again. And that's why it's a, Asher Hegel said, that's why it shows up three times. In other words, every time Mordechai thought he could get away from his communal matters and it was time to go back to Israel, every time, duty called. He had to, he had to leave. So it wasn't just something he did one time. This was something that he had done over the period of seven decades again and again and again, he keeps getting pulled away. He loves Eretz Yisrael, but he keeps having to leave to minister to Am Yisrael, to the people of Israel. So that gives us a little bit of a appreciation of Mordechai's unusual, of his extraordinary devotion to Klal Yisrael 
And maybe that's why the Megillah, and, what, and why and what the Megillah is trying to tell us with its continued emphasis of Asher Hegla, which just kind of falls in line with what the Gemara says, that, that he exiled himself. This is what we know about Mardukai, which is actually quite a bit. That's how we introduce Mardukai. And now we're going to introduce something very special that Mardukai did. And when we know what Mardukai did, we're going to be introduced to the next major character in the Megillah, who you know as Esther, Queen Esther. Vayihi Omen Es Hadassah. The word Omen is kind of a permutation of like a profession almost. He, he took care of it. You know, if, if you wanted to uh, translate it simply, Vayihi Omen Es Hadassah, you would have to say that he looked after or he, he, he raised. Some people say he fostered. It's like a foster parent for this Hadassah. Who is Hadassah? He Esther. She's Esther. Bat Dodo, she is his niece. Or literally the daughter of his uncle. Ki ein la avaim. She doesn't have a father or a mother. Vahanara, and now we talk a little bit about Esther on a simple level, as it's relevant to this story, because Hashverish didn't say, bring me all the, the girls who don't look good. He said, no, bring me the good looking girls. That's all he was interested in. He's very specific. But the thing was that she was Yefas Torah Vetovas Mara. She was exceedingly beautiful. She was very, very, she was <laughs> very attractive. And when her father and her mother died, she took him as a daughter. So before we go into the details, and there are a lot of details in this Pasuk, I'm just going to take you to Rashi for a minute. Rashi says, what does it mean, Lekocha lo levat? How could you take somebody as a daughter? You can raise somebody. You can't take them as a daughter. There is, in, 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 in Torah milieu, there is no procedure in which you appoint somebody as a child or can be appointed as a parent. I understand in the secular courts you can go and you can sign papers and you can become a legal guardian. But in Torah, that doesn't exist. The whole notion of legal guardianship doesn't exist in Torah, in general. And I'm using very general terms now. So if somebody raises a child, wonderful. So, it's, it's a, you know, this is a foster child, beautiful. But you, what do you mean, lekocha? What do you mean, took her? How do, you, how do you take her as a daughter? And anyway, you started off saying the Pasuk that she was omen as Hadassah, that she was, he was fostering or raising Hadassah, taking care of Hadassah. So if he took care of her, so we know, obviously, we're taking care of her. So self-understood that he, that he raised her. It was like, 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 a, like a father to her. And then why does it say he took her as a daughter? Maybe he should say he took himself as a father. <laughs> like, what, what does it mean? So Rashi actually quotes the Gemara and Megillah saying that the word Labat can also have a pun intended. There's a secondary meaning. And the secondary meaning is Labayit, as a home. Because this is the terminology that's used for marriage. That Mordechai married his niece, which, by the way, is legal in Judaism. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> There's a machlekes about this. <laughs> if it makes it easier for you, we can we can call it cousin. At a literal level, uncle's daughter is his cousin. Wouldn't she be older or wouldn't he be older? He wasn't a young, young man. He wasn't young, young. Um, he probably was a lot older than her, yes. yes. She wasn't a baby, but he probably was, but was a lot older. Now, Ibn Ezra, by the way, says this never happened. Ibn Ezra says that Mordechai would never have sent his wife off. He says, forget about it. He says, Haita he thought he was, he was thinking of marrying her. He thought about marrying her. But, but uh, he, he never actually married her. So this is, Rashi seems to follow the simple opinion of the, of the Gemara, that the Gemara says that it was uh, a wife. So Rashi says literally that, that, that he married her. But at any rate, certainly there, there was a, a tremendous closeness between Mordechai and Esther. And you have to understand that if Mordechai is the kind of person that we said he is, that if he raised this woman, or raised this girl, 
that she was probably a very righteous person too. So if the, that's the logic would dictate. If a great tzaddik raises this daughter, she's probably a tzaddikus. So that's how we're introducing Esther. By telling us that Mordechai raised her, we're telling us, we're learning also about the personality of Esther as well. Okay, so before we go further, let's go back to this verse. What is her name? Hadassah or Esther? Both. Why does she have two names? Is Esther Persian? Oh, so here we have a, a whole plethora of interesting things. I'll share some of the uh, excerpts from, from what our sages say, and we'll see how the, uh, the Mepharshim talk about it. The Gemara Megillah says that Rabbi Meir thought her name was Esther. He says, so why is she called Hadassah? And he says, because Hadassah is Tzaddikim are called Hadassim. So Hadassim have this aroma, beautiful aroma, that, that her, her life was an aromatic life, and that we're being told in code that she is a Tzaddik. He's omen as Hadassah. He took Esther and turned her into Hadassah. He took a regular girl, Esther, and he made her into a very righteous woman, Hadassah. This is Reb Meir's opinion. Ben Azai says it was actually a kind of a nom de gourd that described her, that she was rather average. He says she wasn't very tall, and she was a very short. She was like a Hadassah, which is a myrtle tree is average, of average height. And Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha adds that Esther was of a greenish complexion. And since Hadassim are green, that's why she's called Hadassah. Was it a movie Avatar? Well, they were purple, those people. <laughs> a greenish <laughs> They used to call people in Canada, when the Jews came after the war, they called the green echayas, they used to call them. It was a pejorative, it wasn't a compliment. It wasn't nice that they called refugees. You spoke in with an accent to call them all the green echayas. You never heard green echayas? <laughs> I'll introduce you to people in children who remember being called green echayas as kids. Unfortunately. Anyway, so we don't have clarity from the Gemara. Actually, in the Gemara it seems like like two ways. On, on one hand, it, so, it sounds to the Gemara that like her name was really Esther, but she's called Hadassah because of characteristics. Sounds like actually her real name is Esther, and Hadassah is the added name for a variety of reasons. And the Medrash Rabbah says the same thing. Medrash Rabbah says Esther Shema. Her name is Esther. Why is she called Hadassah? She's called Hadassah because Recham Matok Vetamamar. Because she had a sweet aroma and a bitter taste. Really? What was bitter about her? Well, it depends. For Mordechai, it was wonderful. For Haman, he bit into Esther, and it did not work very well for him. In other words, the, uh, the Hadassah has this interesting, has two sides to it. It's a beautiful aroma, but a bitter taste. The Esrog has a beautiful aroma and a beautiful taste, right? So Esther had two sides. She was sweet as a, a, aromatic as a Hadassah, and she was bitter as poison for Haman, and his, for his friends. So this is why her name was Hadassah, to show the two sides of Esther. She's soft, and she's tough at the same time. Again, according to that Medrash Rabbah, it comes out that her name is Esther, and the Nam de Gur is Hadassah, for a variety of reasons. But you guys all knew right away that Esther is a Persian name. Well, we'll get to that in a second. The Masha says that. But let's first see what our sages say. The Gemara in Megillah says, Rabbi Yehuda learned, really Hadassah Shema. She said, no, her name was really Hadassah. So then why is she called Esther? Because she was hiding herself. Nobody really knew she was this mystery queen. As we're soon going to see, Esther didn't tell anybody where she was from. Everybody's wondering. So because she concealed her real origins, that's why she's called Esther. Rabbi Nehemiah follows along the same lines, but he goes much further. He says it was the Persians who named her Esther. He says they called her Bishem Istahir. Now, Istahir is a very, very interesting name. According to some of the sages, the word Istahir is connected to the moon. That's what Rashi says, actually, in the Gemara there. She was, she was called like, the, like she had a moon, like a lunar quality. But the Targum, and many others maintain, 
that the name Istahir is the Persian name for Venus, for the planet Venus. And as you, some of you may know a little bit about Greek mythology, Venus is one of the gods. And Istahir is also one of the Greek gods. In fact, I'm not uh, proud of knowing the stupidity, but um, there is, in some of the Greek mythology, the story of Zeus, who is relentlessly pursuing Istahir, the goddess, because he wants to cohabit with her. This is, this people believe in this. This is like unbelievable, right? And she was running away from him. She didn't want to be violated by Zeus, the god. And at the end, she jumped into the sea and turned into an island, which is one of the Greek islands called Poliko or something. And that island used to be the goddess, Estahir, whatever, who Zeus was after, but she wouldn't let him have her. So, <laughs> it's not really relevant. The point is, though, it's reasonable to assume that if in Greek culture, Estahir was the name of a goddess, probably in Persian culture was also similar. So whether it was actually, Targum says it's planet Venus, it's Ayel Sashachar. But, and, and Rashi seems to say it's Yerech. But whether it's the moon, or whether it's Venus, or whether it's some other star, the point is, she was a star. She was a star. A star was born. And that's, they called her like a goddess. That was the name they gave for Esther. The Marsha actually says that both names, Mordechai and Esther, are Persian names. They're not the real Jewish names. And he says the Megillah was written by Persians. So they had to write the way they knew them. They knew them as Esther and Mordechai. They didn't know them. So, so the Rebbe says, actually wrote in one of his manuscripts that was found after Gimel Thomas in the Rishimus, the Rebbe says that the Marsha's assumption actually fits perfectly with what we see in the Gemara and Megillah. And, and it makes sense that that would have been a Persian name. It, it's, it's actually reasonable. But again, we have these different opinions as to which was her name, which was her primary name, which was her secondary name, how was she known to the nations, how was she known originally, what was she, what was she born as. And I, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> I don't think we know. This is Drush. We see there are many layers of Esther. Esther has many, many, many facets. She's a... Uh, uh, in a good way, a complicated person. She has many sides to her. And we're learning about this very sophisticated, unique woman whose name is Esther. So Esther doesn't have a father and a mother. Why is that relevant? She doesn't have a father or a mother. There's a Meredith a Medrash. The Medrash says, HaKadosh Baruch who said to the Jewish people. He said, you cried and you wept and you said, Yisomim hayinu ve'enav. You said, we are, we are orphans. We have no father after the Beis HaMedrash was destroyed. So, so Hashem said, the Redeemer I will send you will also be an orphan. And that's the orphan girl, Esther. So it's kind of like a, you said you were orphans? I'm sending you an orphan to save you. The Gemara also says, why do you have to say, Uvamais aviha ve'ima? And then it says, ki ein la'av. If you think of the Pasuk, it's a little bit strange over here. It says, ki ein la'av ve'im. Uvamais aviha ve'ima. What's like the... She has no father and mother, and her father dies, ve'ima. So the Gemara says that her father died when she was still an embryo. And her mother died in childbirth. So she never knew her parents. In fact, her father didn't even know that he had a daughter. This is Esther, who's totally uh, alone in the world, raised entirely by Mordechai, leader of the Jewish people, and uh, now we have this, this issue, you know, the, the, um, the Alshech continues on, I'm sorry, the Alshech, the Malbim, I'm sorry. He continues on, he says, why do we have to hear this business that he went, that Mordechai was exiled from, from, uh, from Haglasa because we want him to know that he was an important member of the royal family. And that's why Mordechai was exiled with Yechonia Melech Yehuda. And because of that, we know he's very prominent. And Achashverosh knew this. It just means he's more visible. And this is a daughter that he raises. So if he raises the daughter, it can't be nobody knew who Esther was. They had to know about Esther. The guy lives in a, in a fishbowl. He's very famous. He's very well known. He's, one, he's the only Jew, the only observant Jew, the only devout Jew living in, in Shushan Abira. And he has a beautiful daughter. You think everybody doesn't know about her? It's impossible. And, and, and Esther was known because her name is Hadassah. 
the Malbim builds on the, youth, the expressions in the Gemara that about her aroma and her behavior and her, the kind of personality she had. So she wasn't a, uh, a girl who was a wallflower. She was a very dynamic person. She was a person who was well-known by others. And, and, and the Malbim says, and she has no father or mother. So Meila, Mordechai could say, listen, I, I couldn't give you my cousin because I, what, would I, what would I answer to my, her parents? No, she has no parents. Who is her, who's her guardian? Who's responsible? He's responsible. And the, the Malbim says, the whole thing, the whole setup is showing us how Mordechai took such a risk by not allowing Esther to go to the palace in the beginning. He literally risked his and her life. But he didn't want to do the wrong thing. He says, they're only going to fault him. So it's a okay, she wasn't pretty. You could say, well, I, I, you think she's pretty? I didn't know she was pretty. I thought she was very uh, plain looking. So Gil says, no, no. She's a very, very pretty woman. And, and she was uh, lovely to look at. So you can't, uh, Mordechai knew this. He couldn't say, I, I didn't know you thought she's pretty. What do you, now you tell me? Oh, sure, you could have her. Right? So the, the, the whole point of being made over here is that says, like, he, he breaks down these psukim, like word by word, phrase by phrase, showing us how this is building up to a climax. How Mordechai is doing everything to withhold Esther, and actually, he's going to be held culpable in, in every way. And, and as soon as her parents died, Mordechai adopts her right away. So it's like there's nobody else to blame it on. He is the sole guardian, he's entirely responsible. Now that we know this, when the word of the king is heard, and his rule, his very important new law, they start to gather girls from all over into the capital city of Shushan, in the hands of Hegoi. And then, now naturally, if Esther, if people are gathered from the whole 127 provinces, when should Esther have been taken? If Esther was a willing participant in this contest. Right away, she was right there. They, they brought people from, from India. They brought people from Ethiopia. They brought people from all over the place. In fact, the Medrash talks about the idea that Achashverosh had a whole array of beauties, dazzling beauties, Fanala Zaitan, every color, every shape, whatever you want that he had it. And he actually had maidens assigned to each one. He said the, 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 the dark-skinned beauty got a dark-skinned maiden, and the, the yellow-skinned beauty got a yellow skin. Everybody had something he had, he took from everywhere. From every culture, from every civilization, he took the, the beauty queens, you know, the, of, of every country, they were all sent to Shushan. And then, Vatilokach Esther Only then, after everybody else arrives, only then was Esther brought to Beis HaMelech, Al Yad Hegai, Shemir Hanoshim, into the hands of Hegai, who is responsible for the king's hero. So, so we see a very interesting thing over here. We see that, that Esther doesn't go until the very end. And this is, um, this is emphasized. <coughs> Our sages emphasize that in the beginning Esther was hiding. And only after there was absolutely no choice, that's when Mordechai all of a sudden, so to speak, let her out of the box. He, he hit her. When there was no other choice, everything else, that means there was uh, a second order. And the Vilna Goyen says at that point, they made a very, very clear order that anybody who would be found haboring a beauty, a beauty, if you are hiding back a beautiful maiden, you would have death. So the first was a law. Law, you're playing with the king's laws. Okay, it's not a good idea generally to disobey the king, but you know. Then came the law with a threat. And those people knew that, the king knew some people were still holding the, hiding, hiding their daughters. And we learned about this last in the Malbim, because you know, once she would go to the king, she, she would be stuck by him. And he's being his harem, you know. The big princes and nobility said we could do better for our daughter if she's not going to be the queen anyway. So people started holding their, 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 did maybe hold their daughters back. But one thing is for sure, Mordechai doesn't take her until literally there's a threat of death, which emphasizes here the, the great mysterious Nefesh, as the Malbim says, Vayihi means, in addition to everything we learned, that the rules of the king became well known and everybody heard about it. And already, many, many women came from all over the place. Only then, Vatilokach Esther. The Malbim says, Vatilokach means she was forced. Which leads us to think that she may even have been arrested. Could it be Mordechai? It doesn't say Mordechai sent her. It doesn't say she went. It's Vatilokach, she was taken. Which means Mordechai and Esther literally risked their lives not to go 
Everybody else went willingly. And only, only when Esther was taken, only when Esther was forced, only then did she join the king's harem. So this, you know, with the way the Malbim sets it up, you understand the whole, like the depth of it, how, how this is all portraying what a challenge it was, how, what, a, what an act of sacrifice it was to hide Esther, to try to keep her under the radar. And finally, in the end, under the pain of death, she's arrested, and that's when she's taken into the king's palace. That's when she's brought to the palace. And uh, next week, we'll continue learning what happened when she came to the palace, and we'll learn about the rise of a Jewish star. Look,